On the Wing, Monday through Friday, 11 a.m. to 2 p.m., where you will hear the latest releases in folk, rock, world, jazz, and much more. Only on Community Radio, WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, and streaming worldwide at WERU.org. Support for WERU comes from our members, people like you who keep the station going with your generosity and spirit. Thank you. Just a few seconds before 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Democracy Forum with your host Ann Luther is up next. Good morning. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the third program in our series this election year to be broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is about moochers and freeloaders, welfare for the rich and welfare for the poor. We'll discuss the relationship between free markets and democracy, whether the rules of government and markets have been rigged in favor of big money interests and corporations, while populist sentiment has been played to generate resentment over welfare for the poor. We'll be taking your calls during the second half of the show, so stand by to join the conversation. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum. Let me introduce our guests. Joining us by telephone today is Vanessa Williamson. Vanessa is a fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. That's a nonprofit public policy organization based in Washington, D.C., whose mission is to conduct in-depth research that leads to new ideas for solving problems facing a society at the local, national, and global level. She studies the politics of redistribution with a focus on attitudes about taxation. She is the author with Harvard professor Theta Scotchpole of The Tea Party and the Remaking of Republican Conservatism. Welcome, Vanessa. So glad to have you with us today. Hello, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Join us in the studio is Garrett Martin. Garrett is executive director of the Maine Center for Economic Policy, a nonpartisan research and policy organization dedicated to improving the economic well-being of low and moderate income Mainers. Before joining MESEP, he worked as director of program strategy at the Maine Community Foundation and as associate director at the Genesis Community Loan Fund. He has a lot of experience in community economic development, including work in the Mississippi Delta, India, and Ecuador. Welcome, Garrett. Hi, Anne. Thank you. The American Revolution was stoked as much by commercial interests as it was by political or civic ideals. Our founders sought freedom from tyranny in government and capital markets. At the same time, there is a long thread woven into our history of disdain for the quote-unquote deservedly poor. In his 1890 sermon, Russell Herman Cornwell Conwell, excuse me, founder of America's first megachurch, said this, Let us remember that there is not a poor person in the United States who was not made poor by his own shortcomings. How have these two strains in American culture developed side by side over time, and whose interests are being served by American democracy today? 
Garrett, the Maine legislature is getting ready to crack down on misuse of welfare benefits by limiting the use of food stamps for the purchase of lottery tickets, alcohol, and cigarettes. At the same time, Kate Street financiers walked away with millions of dollars and another corporate bailout for failing biomass energy plans appears headed for bipartisan support. What's going on here? We're cracking down over here and letting the Wild West rule over there. Is there a double standard when it comes to the use and misuse of government supports? I think there is, Anne. I mean, the, the reality is that, that all of us would like to see government work well and work effectively in the use of taxpayer dollars. Um, but order of magnitude, if you look at you know all the conversations that have been had around the welfare issues and the use of those benefits, um, you know it pales in comparison in terms of the amount of dollars on the table uh, with what we've seen being misused for some of these corporate tax subsidies. Um, so that's that's one point. I think the more troubling point from our perspective certainly is that. You know, we, we all want to have a system in which people can uh, benefit from it being innovative and in their hard work. Uh, and our welfare system actually doesn't allow for that either uh, in the sense that uh, it, it, it's not an effective bridge into self-sufficiency. But more importantly, uh, this debate really pits uh, one group of people who are feeling this, the strain of our economy and its, and its sort of anemic uh, activity now uh, against another group who is similarly being uh, disadvantaged by the current uh, economic system. Uh, and so we're, we're looking across at our neighbors rather than, than up the chain, if you will, to the folks who are really uh, making off with a lot more of our money uh, than, than perhaps that one or two example of somebody who's misused some small, uh, modest public benefit that they're currently receiving. Vanessa, uh, Nicholas Kristof had it an important piece in the New York Times yesterday, and Oxfam just released an important new study. Tell us about your own research into attitudes towards moochers and freeloaders and um, what insights that research may offer about why it's so much easier politically to crack down on, on the poor recipients of government benefits than it is on the rich. Well, that's just a great question. I mean, first of all, the thing I'd say is that uh, because the rhetoric around taxation is so sort of poisoned at a national level, I think people tend to forget that most Americans actually have a really strong sense of civic duty when it comes to tax paying. Uh, if you ask Americans, is tax paying civic duty? 95% of people say yes uh, to that question. And so people see tax paying as part of their responsibility to the country and to their own communities. So, you know, um, even while, you know, politicians act as though tax paying is this horrible, you know, onerous burden. Uh, I think Americans, you know, average Americans see it quite differently. Um, but on the question of sort of why some people are perceived as moochers, I think it's it's really crucial to recognize that uh, the conservative rhetoric around the idea of the 47% has had a real impact. Um, so uh, I asked Americans to estimate the percentage of U.S. adults that are taxpayers, and conservative Republicans were far more likely to give an answer around half. And they were also more likely to oppose a welfare program, right? To, when I asked them what upset them about where uh, the government spent money, they were much more likely to list a program aimed at the poor. And that's kind of remarkable because conservative Republicans are usually angry about welfare. But those who believed that poor people aren't chipping in were especially angry about it. So I think it's a really toxic kind of rhetoric to imagine that low-income people who are um, paying a lot in taxes, sales taxes, gas taxes, um, payroll taxes if they're working, um, 
low-income people are actually paying a really large percentage of their income in taxes, and yet we ignore those contributions all too often when we talk about taxpayers. And I think it helps feed an idea that those people, those non-taxpayers, which is basically an imaginary category, those people uh, don't deserve uh, the benefits uh, that the, the rest of us do. Why is it that the big players seem to continually go unscathed in this rhetoric? I mean, the Nicholas Kristof piece yesterday was very pointed on this. And as you say, the order of magnitude is so different. Why is it that those same attitudes don't seem to come across? I mean, even the Cato Institute has called for an end to corporate subsidies. I see Garrett nodding your head. Why is that? Yeah, well, I think what it is it is this interesting coming together. There is there's certainly a conservative line of pers- uh, perspective on uh, how the tax code is being used to pick winners and losers, and increasingly where that is directed is is again up up the ladder, up the stream. Uh, to large corporations. Uh, and so folks have sort of gotten wise to that, and, and even some of the sort of the, the conservative folks have started to say, yeah, no, if we, wanna, if we want a simpler tax system, if we want one that's fair for everybody, uh, we, this is where the, the money is. This is where the beef is, so to speak. Uh, and I think that's what's very interesting. Unfortunately, when we bring that conversation home to the state level, uh, we still suffer from a couple of tropes that sort of uh, uh, trump everything, if you will. Uh, you know, anytime you talk about uh, removing a, a tax subsidy, well, gosh, we might lose jobs and that would be bad for our economy. And all of a sudden, you know, we're really in trouble and we, there's no way we could ever do that. Um, unfortunately, it's never been a balanced conversation because at the same time that we're shoveling money out the back door uh, to support certain programs and incentives like that, uh, it means that we that's less money we have to push out the front door uh, to fund things that all of us rely on, like good roads, good schools, uh, good public services, snow plowing in the winter, those things. And if you look at what has happened with budgeting in Maine since uh, the LePage administration has come into place, uh, the, the taxes that they want to cut, the revenue that they want to forego, by and large is money that comes from wealthier people. Um, and, and in the form of income tax cuts, in the form of estate tax cuts. Um, and the, the, what that means is that the taxes that are going up are the ones that, as, as Vanessa appropriately highlighted, are actually the taxes that affect low and moderate income folks the most, sales taxes, property taxes. So, you know, the reality is um, a dispassionate view of this would certainly show that where the big money is is where the big businesses are. Um, and they've effectively helped structure the, the rules of the game in a way that are beneficial to them. And ultimately, in some respect, even in the state of Maine, when you look at who, who is benefiting the most from some of these uh, tax programs, uh, they are big businesses and that are competing with mom-and-pop businesses on Main Street. Uh, and I think for most people, and in our research at the Maine Center for Economic Policy, um, you know, most people would like to see a level playing field. And the reality is uh, we're actually not creating a level playing field. We're actually disadvantaging a lot of our Maine-based businesses in some respects. So we have to be able to acknowledge that so that we can move forward in creating a system that's beneficial to everyone and actually secures the, the resources we need to make the critical investments that we we all rely on uh, to, to grow our economy. But that's so politically difficult. And Vanessa talks about the rhetoric of around the 47 percent. Vanessa, what's the chicken and the egg here? I mean, in the quote that I cited at the beginning of the program, this um, feeling that mm. anybody who's poor deserves to be poor is certain a longstanding um, thread of American thought. So that 
feeling has been around for a long time. Is it that people are playing to an existing feeling, or is it that people are actually working to create that feeling in order to gain a political advantage? What's your view? Well, I think both things are at work. On the one hand, obviously, there's a very long strain in American politics and you know, uh, worldwide to imagine that poor people uh, are poor because of a sort of personal failing as opposed to uh, structural inequities in society. Um, that's certainly not unique to the United States. But I think in the context of the United States, of course, it's very much tied up um, with a, a history, uh, sort of a racial history in this country in which low-income people were often uh, ethnic minorities. Remain, you know, um, to unfair uh, barriers in terms of advancement, and so I think that 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 makes it harder. There's a really interesting book uh, called "Why Americans Hate Welfare" that uh, looks at how welfare um, perceptions of who is using welfare changed over time in the. 60s, uh, the image of who used welfare was primarily white people uh, in Appalachia. There had been uh, a bunch of stories about uh, you know, uh, very poor children in Appalachia who were actually suffering from serious malnutrition, and it was one of the, uh, the issues that helped make food stamps a reality. Uh, and but over time, the image of who uses welfare switched. It switched to being uh, an urban, more African-American um, sort of stereotype. And with that, you see a dramatic decline in the percentage of Americans who are supportive of welfare programs. So I think that there's a particular history in that regard. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think that it's, it's so important to recognize that programs like food stamps are good for the economy. You know, when we talk about, you were talking earlier about job creators. Uh, and you know how how jobs get created. I mean, economists will tell you, you know, when they when Obama did the the stimulus package, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, uh, and they estimated what effect various proposal parts of the pro, the proposal were going to have on the economy. Uh, money that you get to low income people and to low income working people uh, it has a tremendous multiplier effect because not only are you helping people in a time of crisis, but these are people who will spend that money immediately. And when you spend money, you're creating jobs. Uh, so, you know, it's actually, if you, what you want to do is grow the economy, it makes more sense to give, a, give money to a lower moderate income person uh, than to someone at the top who, you know, basically won't notice an extra few dollars in their paycheck, uh, while at the bottom it makes such a difference. But people don't see it that way. I mean, going back really to the founders and, and the importance of commercial interests in the American Revolution, we in America at the same time have a long history of belief in private enterprise. We believe that capitalism and democracy are closely intertwined. And so we are or seem to be at least much more comfortable politically advantaging commercial interests over personal benefits. What do you think about that, Garrett? Well, I think uh, you raise an interesting point, Anne, in that um People in general uh, like to believe that that we all have the ability to advance on our own effort and on our own merits, um, and at the same time we do so within a broader system uh, and, a, and a broader set of rules. Uh, and and you know that system is it's not only about sort of tax policies and governmental policies, but also about how the rules of the game are structured for our economy. 
Um, and I think increasingly, you know, families that have historically been middle class families are feeling the squeeze of a system that is no longer working for them. You know, from the period of time between uh, 1943 and 1979 or so, um, productivity and wage growth both basically were in sync with each other. So we had a, a little over 100% productivity growth in this country. And uh, meanwhile, median wage levels effectively rose at the same level. Um, since the 1970s, that picture has, has been very different. Um, we're still seeing productivity gains, but uh, most people do not experience the, w the associated wage growth. And I think, you know, while there have been a series of adaptations that families have had, you know, first of all, women went to work in higher percentages, and then families worked longer hours, and then suddenly they're still not keeping track, so they're foregoing investments in retirement security or in their kids' education or uh, those kinds of things, and then, then they have to start borrowing. I mean, in 2003, personal debt exceeded personal um, disposable income for the first time since that date has been recorded, and then we hit the recession. And so I think the reality is that uh, it, it is true we, in some respects our very bearings as a country come from this idea that sort of rugged individualism will prevail and we can all sort of excel on our own merits. And at the same time, there are a lot of people out there whose experience suggests otherwise. You know, they're working year-round full-time jobs and still struggling to make ends meet. And fundamentally, that's a problem. Uh, and it has to do with the ways in which the rules of the game are currently being structured. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther, the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is moochers and freeloaders, welfare for the rich, welfare for the poor. Our guests this morning are Vanessa Williamson, Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution, and Garrett Martin, Executive Director of the Maine Center for Economic Policy. Vanessa, what about that, the relationship between democracy and capitalism and um, the ability of a Democrat, democratic re republic like Lars to shape the rules of capitalism to serve its people or whether that whole mechanism, that whole capitalism and markets mechanism has somehow got bent out of shape and is no longer serving democratic purposes. Can you comment on that? Yeah, I think that that's definitely the case that, you know, these very high levels of economic inequality that we're seeing right now are uh, threatening uh, the democratic processes uh, that we all rely on to help uh, regulate the economy. So it's sort of a uh, um, negative, a downward spiral to some uh, degree. I think that there's some, um, you know, there's some uh, room to imagine that things can improve. I certainly think that, um, you know, there are many examples in American history of uh, people managing to, um, even in context of very high inequality, uh, you know, take back their government in a significant way and uh, to have sort of general interests uh, succeed against, against private interests, right? Um, so I, I don't think that it's an impossible story, but I do think it's a very, very big challenge. We talk a little bit about crony capitalism, and I've heard people, you know, describe it that way. And I've heard some people say it's not really crony capitalism, it's access capitalism, that <laughs> people with more access are the ones that get to shape the rules. And there were some interesting studies um, that I was just reading the other day about every dollar of lobbying generates many, many times more dollars in, in benefits. Um, wh what's that dynamic about? I, Garrett, you're shaking your head. Go ahead, take a crack. Yeah, well, is is uh, you know, you alluded to the um, Nicholas Kristof piece the other day. Or, 
the, the but the you know there is this this recent study that came out that showed uh, from 2008 2014 that uh, 50 companies spent approximately 2.6 billion dollars on in lobbying um, while receiving nearly 11.2 trillion in federal loans, loan guarantees, and bailouts. I mean clearly there's there's a calculation that you make in business, and that calculation is based on your return on investment. Um, they've made the calculation that this is a very good return on investment for them. Um, make no mistake, uh, our, this, the success of many of the companies that we hold near and dear to our hearts in this country uh, is built in part on public structures and public dollars and public investments. Um, and, you know, so at the same time, we should ask that those uh, beneficiaries of those dollars uh, pay their fair share. And I think when they don't, it comes at a cost to all of us and ultimately undermines both our democracy and our economy. You know, I just want to say one thing, Anne, that, that came up earlier, and that is, again, by, by allocating resources in this way, we're removing them from other in critical investments in our communities. And, you know, one example I'll give is one, one of my best friends is, is an African-American woman who grew up in Mississippi. And she's got a great story about how when she was getting ready to enter school, her parents moved to the other side of town so that she could effectively go to the white school. Um, and as a result, she went on to Spelman College and then Yale Law School and now is doing great and glorious things in the world. But she completely acknowledges that her success was based on the fact that her parents made a decision that put her in a place where she had access to a community and a school system where they were making and honoring the public investment and public commitment to those schools. The neighboring community didn't have that level of resource, couldn't make those kinds of investments, and she saw it in the friends that she was, you know, her childhood friends. They didn't get ahead in the same way. Um, so that's just one example of, you know, why this stuff matters in terms of both honoring our, our concept of people being able to get ahead on their own merits, but at the same time recognizing that we all succeed or fail in part when we uh, have a shared commitment to paying it forward for future generations. We're going to do a program later in our series this year on public education and how differences in public <clears throat> education affect differences in civic participation, not only in um, the economic sphere, but also in the political yeah. sphere. So that, that'll be an interesting conversation. Um, you know, I think people are generally quite familiar with the forms of welfare because they get a lot of visibility and a lot of play. You know, there are food stamps and Medicaid and some other forms in which supports to um, to families um, are funded by the government. But I think the release of the Panama Papers was the first in a while to really highlight the mechanisms by which people at the other end of the spectrum are able to take advantage of relatively little understood um, tax expenditures, tax breaks, direct subsidies, and whatnot. Vanessa, can you help our listeners understand a little bit better the panoply of tools that are available under, let's call it, access capitalism? Yeah, I think that that's a really important question. I want to um, add one clarifying point. First of all, uh, most Americans are very concerned that corporations aren't paying their share. If you ask people that, you get overwhelming levels people agreeing that corporations aren't paying enough. So while the details of, you know, the particular accounting tricks uh, are certainly obscure to most people, uh, you know, and obviously that's 
on purpose. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's how they created it. But um, it, that doesn't mean that the problem is invisible more broadly. And I think that's a really important distinction, right? Because it's one thing for people to recognize that, you know, um, corporate interests and very wealthy people have access to a set of um, exceptions and um, privileges that, you know, I, the average taxpayer, do not have access to. Um, and it's another thing to be able to um, organize that sort of general sense into a political campaign uh, at the crucial moment when these decisions are being made, right? Because you've got a, a very small number of uh, very well-funded people who are very clear on exactly what language they need in what legislation, uh, and a much broader percentage of people who have only, who have a basement that this is clearly wrong, but can't necessarily organize themselves in time to prevent the success of these kinds of special interests. Um, that said, I think there's, oh, there's an important element that's, um, that sometimes gets lost in terms of uh, the income tax, in particular the personal income tax. I've done a lot of interviews with Americans about how they perceive the tax system, and they're very concerned about loopholes, uh, which makes sense. Uh, and certainly when it comes to the corporate tax code, it's terribly important, all of the loopholes. But what it means is that Americans actually are not very focused on rates, and we'll often accept sort of a trade-off that you'll close some loopholes and lower the rates. Uh, or they think that a flat tax might actually raise taxes on the rich, which it would almost definitely not do, mm -hmm. no matter how you form that tax. But they think that a flat tax might raise taxes on the rich, not because they're bad at math or don't understand how percentages work, but because they think that the loopholes are so big that the graduated income tax, the graduated personal income tax, basically doesn't apply. And that's not true, right? Uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, the individual income tax, um, wealthy people do pay a higher percentage than poorer people uh, as a rule until you get maybe to the very, 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 very highest reaches. But the tax system is progressive, and that's why a flat tax would be a huge boon uh, for very wealthy people. So I think that the, the misperception of like the importance of loopholes as opposed to race is actually, it, it undermines to some extent the capacity of people who know that they would like wealthy people to pay more to identify what kind of policy solution would actually achieve that goal. And, and I mean, oh, go ahead. Sorry, Anne, I, I just, you know, I, I think following up on Vanessa's point, I mean, first of all, we see this all the time in Augusta, too, that groups that have a narrow interest that's, you know, very clear are much more likely to show up and mobilize and pay the lobbyists to do the their bidding, uh, whereas, you know, the public's interest tends to be a little more diffuse and, and it's hard to have effective advocates in that space. Um, but the other thing that, that, that I think she also spoke to from my mind that really pops out is most people do have a sense that something's not right right like the the game is rigged here a little bit and but quite honestly I, I don't understand enough to know what how it's rigged and how I can sort of deal with it but when I go to the store and I see that who that person who I perceive to be poor misusing that benefit card that I think is where their welfare benefits are and there are a lot of assumptions going on there right but but I see that and I know that that's wrong too and I, there's something I can do about that so it, it, there is this sort of dichotomy between people's experience and people's understanding. And unfortunately, I think most people, certainly if you ask them, appreciate that, that the rich are getting richer and that there's a good game being run uh, to the benefit of, of the corporations, but they don't quite know how to engage that or how to affect it. And I think that's one of our challenges. And, and quite honestly is, is why it's interesting to note that 
you've got a lot of folks who are out there right now in support of Bernie Sanders who just as easily could be Trump supporters. Right. Um, because both those candidates, I think, are effectively tapping into that sense that this economy is not working for working people and that there's something wrong, but they don't quite know what the solution is. But, you know, those two guys are speaking in a way that, that resonates for me in that space. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because welfare fraud and Medicare fraud, I mean, we understand the language of that, and we understand that something's being done that's fraud. It's sort of against the law. But a lot of the stuff that goes on to enhance um, corporate profits and rich people's um, advantage is not fraud at all, perfectly legal, direct subsidies to corporations, perfectly legal tax um, I will say evasions, but tax structures, um, you know, the kind of tax havens that were highlighted in the Panama Papers to the extent they're done in the U.S. are not illegal, as President Obama pointed out. Many of them are perfectly legal. So, I mean, some of this has to do with what we can see is perfectly illegal going on over there, and the other half has to do with stuff that has been very deliberately set up in order to be legal. Right, um, right. So, I mean, what what do we do about this? Um, and, I, you know, I'm interested, Vanessa, because you talked about the language. I mean, we have very clear language to talk about moochers, freeloaders, cheats, frauds, and all that kind of stuff. You don't hear the language on the other side about fat cats and monopolists. And, I mean, these terms from a, uh, a century and a half ago that kind of language is not being deployed. So what about that, Vanessa? I just invite you to comment. Yeah, I and mean, I think that's uh, it's actually something that I've been thinking a lot about. I mean, one thing that I've noticed just anecdotally is that the stereotypes of what poor people are like actually update all the time. I mean, you you may remember you know, the sort of Cadillac having welfare queen. Well, now if you hear people talk about this stuff, they imagine that poor people have flat screen TVs. So there's this constant updating of the imagery associated with being one of these, you know, supposed poor people who are who are cheating the system. Um, but the language we use that you hear commonly to talk about the wealthy or even the images of what it is to be sort of a wealthy person who's benefiting unfairly from the economy, that language is all very, very old. And even if you look at political cartoons, it doesn't change. We still put them in top hats. Mm-hmm. You know? So there's been a sort of failure, I think, to uh, develop a contemporary-sounding language that uh, would identify the sort of moochers and freeloaders uh, kind of rhetoric but aimed at the other end of the economic spectrum. Just to follow up on the, the point that Garrett was making, that I thought was such a good one, um, I think that one of the challenges we see is, you know, as you say, like you go to the grocery store and if you look at the grocery cart, the person in front of you, you can make judgments about what kind of person they are, but you don't get that opportunity when it comes to very wealthy people. And, and another thing that I think is difficult is the fact that you, it's harder to make the connection between why your school, your kid's school, doesn't have an arts program anymore, or why your road didn't get repaved, or why the um, snow plows didn't come through on time, and the fact that your government didn't get enough money six months ago or two years ago because they had written a special deal for, uh, like, a local special interest, right? So the, the train of connection there is really quite long, while yeah. the train of connection, um, when it comes to, you know, seeing that person who you assume is defrauding on welfare is actually quite short, right? It's right in front of you, at least that's what you think when you see it. Yeah. So I think that's a, uh, 
really important challenge when it comes to, you know, it's easy to talk about these millions and billions of dollars in the abstract, but what it means on a day-to-day basis is that your government doesn't get to do things that you want it to do. And, I mean, that's a whole nother subject. Why doesn't it? You know, why is this so difficult to change? But at this point, I'd like to invite listeners to join our conversation. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this morning are Vanessa Williamson, fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution, and Garrett Martin, executive director of the Maine Center for Economic Policy. Our topic today is moochers and freeloaders, welfare for the rich, welfare for the poor. If you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation now by calling toll-free 866-625-9378 or if you're calling locally, 469-0500. We have only one listener line open, so be patient if you get a busy, busy signal. If you do get through, please pose your question and take your answer off the line so that others can call in. Um, so I was interested, you know, reading the Nicholas Kristof piece, he made the point about the IRS and how the IRS has shrunk and is no longer able to do the kind of enforcement that would bring in those taxes. And I was wondering if you thought that had been a deliberate strategy to shrink the IRS so that it could no longer do the job or whether that was just a coincidence in the point Well, of and I do think it's, it's sort of undeniable that uh, we've been through 20 years now of trying to depict government as the enemy, and that has borne fruit in some respects in, in regards to government's capacity to do the functions that we expect. And, you know, I, I love the irony. Well, I don't love it, but, you know, there is an irony to me always when uh, people want to blame the government for their problems, but then when they have a crisis and, you know, those public services aren't available, they're upset that they're not there. And this goes back to Vanessa's point about, you know, connecting the dots for folks that, you know, if, 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 if it's, it, it, it is a connected uh, situation. You know, on that point, when we look at Maine, and I'm not suggesting there's any intentional thing going on here, but uh, we've certainly heard uh, from folks that uh, in, even in our own state revenue services, when you think about how much energy has been spent on trying to go after a few thousand dollars literally in the welfare program in terms of you know, people spending it in ways that, that uh, you know, most folks don't think is appropriate, um, and at the same time recognize that our main revenue services may not necessarily be, uh, may be leaving a lot of money on the table when it comes to auditing out-of-state corporations that are doing businesses in the state. And, and I've had a CPA say to me, you know, we, we used to just write this in as a cost of doing business. We expect to get audited and we're not getting audited anymore. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's, 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 a, that's a choice. And that's, again, structuring and enforcing the rules in a way that uh, benefits one group uh, and, and vilifies another group uh, for potentially political gain, uh, but doesn't actually, dollar for dollar, give us the best bang for our buck. We do have a caller on the line, Margaret from Orland. You're on the air. Go ahead. Hi. Um, yeah, I, I'm, a thought arises in my mind uh, connecting the fact that I've raised four children and seen how they behave. You know, one of them does something wrong, and, and they, uh, you know, they say, oh, no, I didn't do it. He did it, you know. Uh, I think we're all familiar with children doing that. Well, I think that's what's happening, and quite intentionally perhaps, uh, with blaming the poor, you know, so we won't look at the distraction. We, don't look, we won't look at uh, what 
who really is causing this dislocation and, and a bad distribution of, of wealth in this country. Oh, well, I mean, the poor deserve it, you know, because they didn't, they, you know, they misused their food stamps or something. Um, the other stuff is just so opaque that it's hard to see. And, uh, and then I also see the tax situation as confounding all this, too, because I just did my taxes. And I heard an interview on NPR of somebody who was interviewing a woman who apparently wrote the tax uh, papers, you know, to make it supposedly simple for people to use. And there's so much complexity in there that uh, it just boggles your mind. I'd like to refer people to a, a commentary in the Ellsworth American this week um, by Jane uh, Crozen uh, about how it drives you mad. You're trying to do your own taxes, and you have to go to a CPA and have and pay a big uh, fee in order to, you know, get it put into a computer. And you know, it should be that we can manage our own affairs, but we can't anymore. Thank you, Margaret. Vet, Vanessa, what do you think about that? She's saying there's some dissimulation, like look over there when the problem is really over here. I mean, is, has that been a deliberate political strategy? Oh, I think definitely the, the case that um, uh, it's very helpful to have uh, scapegoats uh, in politics. And I think that many people have used uh, blaming the poor for their condition uh, very effectively for uh, decades, probably centuries. Uh, and on the point about the complexity of the income tax code, I think it's crucially important. And it's important for several reasons, not only because, of course, it's very annoying and a waste of money to have to go to a CPA or to buy, you know, one of the computer programs or what have you, um, or, you know, go to go to your local accountant. Um, of course, that's very annoying, but it's also, I think, uh, many people uh, find it frustrating on a much larger level because this is one of the few times when people file their income taxes, that Americans interact in a very direct way with the federal government. And what they learn about the federal government is that it is obscure, that it is uh, written for someone else quite clearly because there are all these little you know, loopholes here and there and, and um, uh, deductions and credits and all the other things that they can't apply for. Um, and it's also something that an average person can't oversee. Right? They can't make a good judgment based on the process of filing their income taxes about whether, first of all, where that money is going or whether the amount that they're paying is fair compared to other people. Right? They don't get any uh, of the information that a democratic citizen really deserves about uh, what government does. And so I think that it's, it's a, a crucially important fact that we have sort of this annual ritual, an, an annual civic ritual that should be something that people should be able to feel proud about Right? It's one of their opportunities to contribute to the government that we all use. But instead, it's leading to this terribly frustrating process that sort of fundamentally uh, has kind of an anti-democratic overtone in the extent to which it is um, beyond the grasp of the average person to understand. Can do, yeah. So, yeah. And I just want to jump in on this. So Margaret's, Margaret's raised uh, an issue that is a perfect case in point of how uh, – uh, private interests are benefiting from public dollars and public programs and uh, thwarting the public's interests. And what I mean by that is 
uh, when when most people file their taxes, the W-2 information, that stuff goes to the IRS, um, and you know your 1099s go to the IRS. Um, so that information is actually there and available. And there have been efforts to create a program uh, through the IRS that basically for most taxpayers who don't have complex tax issues, which quite frankly is most of us, um, where it pre-fills that information and you just go on and verify it and then uh, uh, add any you know deductions that, that might be necessary and then you're done. And uh, there have been proposals now multiple times in Congress to provide this service and to do it for free. Uh, it would be very efficient. It would streamline the, the reporting process for taxpayers. And guess who has been in opposition for it uh, and, and has sort of driven the conversation in such a way to prevent this from happening? Intuit. Who is Intuit? Well, they own the TurboTax brand. They're making a huge sum of money by virtue of the fact that people have to file their income taxes, and it's in their interest to, to thwart any effort that might actually make it easier for people to do it or might even not require them to pay Intuit a lot of money to make that happen. So they have a clear and specific financial interest at stake. Meanwhile, the rest of us are, are losing out. You know, I don't know. I paid $70 for my Intuit. I probably could have done the free thing. Um, it's a convenience now uh, to, to ha have it automated, and we have the capacity to do that through the IRS. Yep. Um, we're, you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. We're taking your calls right now. You can join the conversation, 866-625-9378 or 469-0500. So we're talking about even as it comes to taxpayers and paying taxes and automating and simplifying taxes, how government is so much more responsive to corporate and commercial interests than it is to the interests of its ordinary citizens. And that really is the big topic of the day. You know, are free markets and capitalism and democracy really working to serve the interests of ordinary people? And if so, why not? So, Vanessa, what do you think is the, you know, deep sort of underlying mechanism that gets in the way of a more responsive democracy and one that shapes uh, its interests more to serve ordinary people rather than corporate interests and very rich people? Gosh, I mean, that's an awfully large question. I mean, I think one problem that underlies a lot of this, I think Garrett already pointed to it, is the collective action problem, right? When a small group of people see, can see very large benefits, it's, uh, they're highly motivated to participate, right? And that's especially true if they, of course, have a lot of resources to begin with. So if a small group of wealthy people can expect very large benefits from a particular piece of legislation, they are not only motivated, but they have the tools at their disposal to make a big difference in terms of what our government does. Um, on the other hand, when benefits are diffused, uh, and you know, would, we'd all get a, a little bit of a better government if uh, you know a, a certain tax loophole was closed for corporations, let's say. Um, it's much harder to organize people, uh, you know, because most people are much busier, right? We have, you know, jobs and kids and all the rest of it that we need to be doing. We can't be watching uh, Washington or state capitals um, every minute of the day. So it's harder. It's harder to for the public for public interested uh, individuals to participate, and it's also harder to galvanize people to to do that kind of work. Do you um, so I think that's probably a, like a fundamental aspect of the challenge. And the other problem is that once you get into the kind of situation we're in, right, with very high levels of economic inequality, the problem gets worse. Yep. So a... you can also sort of end up in a in a kind of status quo that um, is very difficult to get back out of. 
Well, and and you know the other the other piece of this is is uh, not only is you have the diffusion issue uh, which we've talked about, and and just to that point, you know uh, the top one percent in this country hold about a third of the country's wealth. You know the top five percent account for almost two thirds of our country's wealth. So when we talk about you know. Uh, the reality is there are a lot more of us who are low and moderate income than there are <laughs> who are in the upper echelons. Um, but the, the, the other piece is uh, that there is a, a lack of information. You know, one of the, the fundamental tenets of, quote, unquote, a free market is, uh, you know, what's called sort of transparency of information, that there's no, uh, the, you know, that, that one entity uh, doesn't have uh, information over another. Um, and it's, it's striking to note, again, how much scrutiny has been applied to our welfare program in this state, you know, to try and ferret out those very few instances, quite honestly, uh, where uh, benefits have been used inappropriately. And, I, and I'm not suggesting that, that we shouldn't be looking at and making sure those programs are accountable. Um, but the reality is we don't apply that same level. We don't even have that kind of information available for a lot of these other programs that, again, spend way more money uh, to businesses. And point of fact, anybody who's serious about dealing with, uh, quote-unquote, welfare fraud, uh, where the real money is, is in provider fraud. Um, and and the, that's where the system is being abused the most. Uh, and, and again, uh, you don't hear any of that. Uh, you, you're not seeing a lot of the same kind of rhetoric or energy being spent in that way. And part of that, my theory is, is, you know, by and large, those tend to be reputable people. You know, they're people that we want to trust. Um, and they're not people that are easily vilified. Um, and, and, and again, this is where the sort of game of politic, unfortunately, thwarts uh, the, 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 the real need to scrutinize programs and make sure that our, those programs are working in the best interest of all of us. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this morning are Vanessa Williamson, Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution, and Garrett Martin, Executive Director of the Maine Center for Public for Maine Center for Economic Policy. Um, your questions or comments are welcome at this time. You can join our conversation by calling 866-625-9378 or 469-9378. Zero five zero zero. We're in the last 15 minutes of the show, so at this point I think I'd like to turn the conversation to what can ordinary citizens do? Are there any hopeful signs on the horizon that um, particular actions are being generated or that civic engagement um, by and large may begin to turn the tide on this or that particular reforms are being considered that people can latch on to and support? What do you think, Garrett? Well, you know, I'm not going to lie. This stuff is tricky. <laughs> There's no simple solution. If there were, we would have fixed it already, right? Um, but I think what, you know, the, the first thing that ordinary people can do is vote um, and really try and engage in the process as best they can and, and as, as much as they're able. Um, I do think that uh, certainly our lawmakers need to hear of people's concerns about these issues and, and really understand that, uh, lawmakers who cloak themselves in the rhetoric of uh, being pro-business and of uh, being pro-job growth uh, to the at the expense of all 
other reason uh, should be held to, to task. And I'll give you two specific examples from Maine, and one is one I know you're familiar with, Ann, which is, you know, Maine voters overwhelmingly said we want to fund clean elections in this state and that we want to do it by uh, rolling back uh, modestly, very modestly, quite frankly, um, this sort of backdoor spending that we do for businesses that may not be productive because somewhere among the $1.3 billion in tax breaks that we give to businesses in the state, I think we could find a million dollars. Um, well, the legislature has basically sort of thwarted the will of the people, and this governor has too, in choosing not to do that. Um, and I think I think the the, the people who uh, were engaged in that effort and who supported it should should make that known that that, that they're keeping an eye on this. You know, interestingly, there was real low-hanging fruit from our perspective on this issue. Uh, there are a lot of there are several corporations in the state that take advantage of what are called offshore tax havens. Um, so that you referenced the Panama Papers earlier. You know, it's it's not unlike that scheme for businesses, where they effectively are sheltering profits so that they don't have to pay tax on those uh, those issue those uh, profits. And we have seen credible uh, estimates from Maine Revenue Services that suggest that that's that could generate about five to ten million dollars worth of revenue for the state of Maine. That certainly is more than enough money to pay off this clean elections bill. But unfortunately, uh, we have politicians in, in Augusta who have said, oh, no, we, we couldn't do anything that might hurt, you know, businesses locating in Maine or businesses, you know, growing jobs in Maine. Well, I'm sorry, but the evidence has shown that, uh, you know, there are a lot of businesses who have been sheltered through the years that are plenty happy to cut and run when it's convenient for them to do so, leaving Maine taxpayers to hold the bag. Uh, and I think it's time that uh, Maine people sort of press their lawmakers to say, you know, all this energy you're directing to welfare is misplaced. You really need to be looking at corporate welfare and you need to be thinking about creating a tax system that's fair for all of us. Mm -hmm. Thank you. What about you, Vanessa? Do you have any glimmers of hope for us, places to look for policies that Maine people or people across the country could latch on to um, as hope for the future? The thing I think I'd say that, that I find hope in is, is actually my own work. So I spend my time interviewing and surveying Americans about how they think about government, what they would like government to be doing. And the fact is that what most people want is different from what we have now. And, um, you know, I think that there's a, a tendency to imagine that you're alone in the wilderness when you're concerned about, you know, corporations not paying their taxes or you think that we should be doing, we should be investing more in our roads and schools and hospitals and things like this. And you think that you're all alone. Well, I mean, the fact is, and it seems that way, right? Because it's not happening, right? Government's not doing those things. They're not, you, you think you, you know, if government's not doing what, uh, you want it must be the case that many that not enough people want it, right? Um, and so I think that people get disheartened by that. But um, it's it's actually you know if, if people actually believe that they were in the majority uh, in wanting reforms like clean elections or wanting additional public spending uh, on you know local goods, um, and then I think that you know it it might help people feel like they could be in it for the long haul, you know, and not just. You know, one of the most crucial things, I think, is not, it's not just about the presidential elections. We get a lot of news about that. It pays a lot of attention. Of course, it's very important. Uh, but, you know, those midterm elections had this huge drop-off in yeah. voting, yeah. right? And, you know, then all those down-ballot races also, you know, just don't get the same kind of attention. But that is so crucial to getting uh, policy made uh, at the state level and also, you know, Congress. Um, and so to the extent that people can... Uh, get more engaged, not just in the sort of big year, but in every year, 
I think it would make a tremendous difference. You sound like the League of Women Voters now. Um, <laughs> we have another caller on the line, Jonathan from Monroe. Go ahead with your question or comment. Uh, hi there. Yes. Um, great show. Um, my daughter's also, uh, one thing I've noticed, I, I um, spent a fair bit of time in the last year and a half over kind of in Augusta trying to watch how bills were going through. And I noticed a couple things. One was that uh, I was surprised about the level of um, uh, how many, you know, as citizens legislatures, how many legislators really didn't know the details of um, what they were having to um, vote on in committee and were re relied heavily on lobbyists to uh, provide them with, like, basic information. And that seemed like it automatically left a skewed um, skewed lawmaking when somebody who has a, you know, a financial interest, otherwise they wouldn't be there, they wouldn't be paid to be there, is providing a lot of, uh, of essential information for lawmakers to then uh, use to, to make their decisions on. Um, so that was something I really noticed happening a lot. Um, you know, it, it bothered me quite a bit. It's a good point. This Oxfam study that we've been alluding to earlier says that for every dollar spent on lobbying at the federal level, I guess this is, um, 50 companies received $130 in tax breaks and more than $4,000 in federal loans, loan guarantees, and bailouts. It's a pretty big return on investment. But what do you say about that? The legislators don't really understand. Yeah, no, I, I, I you know... I think Johnson's hit on a really important point that a lot of Maine people don't may or may not appreciate. And, you know, we have a citizen legislature, which is certainly an idealized view of, of how we can represent ourselves and, and organize ourselves. Um, the reality is he's right, is that, you know, lawmakers are have to consider well over 2,000 bills each session. Um, because it is a citizen legislature, because we have term limits, what it means is that your institutional knowledge is very thin. Um, furthermore, the legislature is very thinly staffed, and most of the people who are there actually as staff to the various uh, lawmakers tend to be there to help ensure that those people get reelected. Um, they're not necessarily people who have substantive knowledge of the policy issues. So you've got uh, you know folks who haven't been there very long, who are drinking out of the fire hose all the time and can be very easily manipulated based on, you know, what information that they aren't allowed to hear. And quite honestly, that's the other thing that's troubling is, you know, they circle up ranks around certain issues and refuse to let information that's ca countervailing views come in. But I think Johnson's point is well made that, um, and I, I see this, and I'm I'm a lobbyist, full disclosure. Um, but uh, I, I think it is something that certainly troubles me um, in the sense that uh, f folks really, even even in their committees of jurisdiction, uh, may not necessarily have the knowledge base or experience to speak on these issues, and don't have the time to get up to speed enough to effectively uh, understand what questions they need to be asking to make sure they don't. Uh, just give the the farm away at times. Yeah, We're, I can jump in on that. Please do, Vanessa. Please do. Um, it's actually true nationally that um, if you comp if you look at I don't know if you've heard of the American Legislative Exchange Council, uh, it's sort of a, a business lobbying outfit nationally that has done a lot of work to pass what they call model bills, which is basically cut and paste bills written by corporate lobbyists that they want states to pass. 
right? And so they've done research, like, where do these bills get passed? And one of the places they get passed is in places where the legislature is less professionalized, because it means that, you know, just like in Maine, uh, legislators don't always have the time to know what they're uh, looking at, right? And so they're so much more reliant on... Um, on the sort of moneyed interest that comes through and can explain what's happening and make things seem clear. And so this is absolutely the case. It's not limited to men at all. It's true nationally that if you don't invest public money properly into your legislature, you don't get the best legislative outcome. Yep. We're coming into the last few minutes of the show, so I want to give each of you a few minutes to make a parting comment on our big topic. Um, So, Garrett, go ahead. Sum up for us a little bit. Well, I think the most important point from from uh, the work that we do at the main center, um, Anne, is that you know our economy is not like the weather; <laughs> it doesn't just happen in some respects. Um, that that we really do have the ability as citizens to influence the rules of the game and to level the playing field, and uh, it's important to understand and appreciate that. You know, this idea that we have a, a, a market system that sort of is free and open and unfettered is, is not accurate. Uh, corporations know that because they've been rigging the rules in their favor for years. Um, I think it's time that, that, that people stand up and try to, to structure the rules and rebalance that system. And I think efforts like those to raise the minimum wage, for, for example, are, are one example of how uh, we as citizens can do that, uh, certainly continuing to lean in on some of these issues of tax policy so that we don't thwart spending in our communities for the things that we all uh, depend on and that support prosperity for future generations is vitally important. So uh, we look forward to continuing to engage that fight here at the state of Maine uh, and certainly anticipate working with good folks like Vanessa and others to help prosecute that at the federal level as well and hope that others will join in that as well. Thank you, Garrett. What about you, Vanessa? A few summarizing comments on the big picture? I mean, I think the thing I'd say is that I'm actually actually relatively optimistic on this issue, uh, in part because I think that you know, over and over again, I hear people say, well, you know, I don't mind paying my taxes as long as it's going to, you know, schools and roads and hospitals and parks and things that we all care about. And But everyone who says that to me says it like they're the only person who's ever told me it. So I think that one of the one of the really great things that people could realize is that you're not alone on this issue if you feel that way. In fact, you're in the majority. Uh, and at the end of the day, their corporate interests have a lot of power, but they still don't get to vote. Uh, and at the end of the day, elected officials do actually need the majority of vote. And so while this issue does seem very difficult, uh, and certainly I think there are a lot of challenges in terms of economic inequality and getting uh, you know, democracy to flourish in that, kind of a, in that kind of a situation, it's not impossible. Uh, and so I think that you know, people, if they had the faith that their um, sort of public-spirited views were in the majority, they might be you know, willing to give it another try. Uh, even, you know, in the face of such large challenges. Well, we certainly are going to have something for everybody in the election this year, and I hope people will turn out and vote. We are out of time this morning, so thank you to our guests, Vanessa Williamson, Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution, and Garrett Martin, Executive Director of the Maine Center for Economic Policy. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Thanks to Amy Brown this morning, our engineer at WERU. Thank you to our listeners. Our website at the League of Women Voters is 
lwvme.org. If you have a suggestion for a topic or guests on a future program or to join the league, email us at downeast at lwvme.org or call the League of Women Voters at 622-0256. Thanks. We'll see you here next month. Support for WERU comes from our listeners 